0: This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And Today. Good faith, fam. We have with us photographer and best-selling author of *Dignity: Seeking Respect in Back Row America*, which is one of my favorite books. And as someone who cares about the future of community, place, faith, I'd say he's maybe our most perceptive social commentator these days. He's Chris Arnotti, and we're gonna talk about faith and community. So the week this episode's gonna drop is the week that Jews all over the world head into their synagogues over the weekend, over the Sabbath, and read. Deuteronomy chapters 21 through 25 from the Bible. And the reason that's extra important to me is because it's the anniversary of what I usually tell people is my second bar mitzvah. So for those of you who don't know, in the Jewish tradition, a child becomes an adult as soon as they become responsible for obeying God's will. So when you become in Hebrew, what's called a bar mitzvah. And for boys, that's when you turn 13 years old. Now, in the deeply traditional Jewish community in which I grew up and still live and love, the custom is that, when you turn 13, you have to memorize in the original Hebrew, the chapters of the Bible that you're reading in synagogue that week, and then you read them out loud on behalf of the whole community. Now, when I turn 13... My parents did something pretty remarkable that I'm still very grateful to them for, which is instead of throwing a party, my dad decided to take me and my two grandfathers to Ukraine to visit the tiny little towns that our families came from. And my dad made it my responsibility to read the Torah for the Jewish community in Lvov, which was the big city where Jews kind of still live nearby. But at the last minute, my grandmother, my mom's mother got cancer. And so my grandfather stayed behind and he couldn't hear me read the Bible and he was devastated and he was and he still is a very deeply pious man to whom faith and community meant everything. So it was very hard. And so that was my first bar mitzvah. And the reason I call it my first bar mitzvah is because my parents knew how heartbroken my mom's father was. So they decided that I had to memorize another set of chapters from the Bible to read in my local synagogue in America two months later so my mom's father could be there and hear it. And it was a second bar mitzvah. And the anniversary of that second bar mitzvah is this week. And if I could sum up my gratitude to my parents with one story, it'd probably be that one. Because I know it sounds like they tortured me. I mean, like what 13-year-old wants to spend months and months, including basically the entire summer, memorizing not one but two sections of the Bible in an ancient language? But think about what they taught me, what they gave me. They taught me about the importance of place, of knowing where you're from, that people belong somewhere, even if it's not a glamorous urban center, but a small, poor village in the Polish backwater. And they taught me that there's nothing more important than family and that there's something wrong with a society that doesn't honor its elders. And in other words, they taught me that faith, community, a sense of local belonging weren't just some of the many ingredients to living a good life. They were the main ingredients, the essential thing. And over the last 50 years or so, those things, faith, community, and the local, have fallen out of favor upon the towering heights of American culture and policy. But call me crazy, I think we're already at the beginning of rediscovering the beauty and the importance of those things, and part of that rediscovery is down to the fact that so many people have had those things ripped away from them and mourn its loss. But still, could there be some hopeful possibilities as well? So to unpack all this, I invited on the photographer, best-selling author of Dignity, Seeking Respect in Backer America, a man who's really, truly devoted his blood, sweat, and tears to exploring this question. He's the amazing Chris Arnotti. Chris, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So Chris, you kind of began your journey and it's kind of well chronicled in your book and a lot of pieces you've written by walking into neighborhoods that, as you put it, were places where people told you not to go. And I think What people focus on when you tell those stories is often on how you were going into, quote unquote, bad neighborhoods. But one thing that struck me is that you weren't just going into bad neighborhoods, you were going into neighborhoods. Like that itself seemed to be like a significant thing. Now, I feel like for most people, you live in a city or you live in a, you know, you live in some sort of metropolitan area, every single place is exactly like every single other place. You were going into places where there were like distinct cultures and feels to a place. So what have people forgotten in America or sort of in like the larger blob of similar places across the world, just about place, about local place?
1: One of the things I would say is I think we tend to, and when I use the global we, I mean what I call the front row, which is the elites, the people who are very different in many ways, but very similar in their experiences post high school. You know, it's people who go to the same sort of colleges and make careerism, getting a career, building a resume, their primary focus. And in many cases, and I use we because that's me. I have a PhD in physics and I, I spent 20 years as a Wall Street banker. And I moved a lot. I left my town as soon as I could when I graduated high school and immediately left. And I didn't look back. I didn't regret at the time leaving. But we tend to view building a career as a primary focus. And we forget, you know, we look at things like you said, family, faith and really place as kind of secondary to tertiary things that you kind of will put aside to advance your career. Certainly that's true of, of place more than the other two, and, and we can talk a little bit about family and faith, but bankers, lawyers, politicians, you know, the places I, I spent most of my life in, colleges, trading floors, are filled with people who do not view place as anything other than a leapfrog to the next stage of their career. And I spent about 10 years driving around the country and talking to people in neighborhoods that, quote, most people don't visit, certainly tourists don't visit, but certainly lots of people live in. And whenever I asked the question, why didn't you move? They would just look at me like I was that was a crazy question. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, this is where I'm from. This is my home. And after a certain number of times, when you start asking questions, question, you get a crazy look in your eyes. And enough people look at you crazy. You realize you're the one who's crazy. I'm the one who didn't get it. I'm the one who has the misguided or the different view relative to a lot of people on how people view place. Place is extraordinarily valuable. It's very valuable in a non-elitist way, meaning that we're all gifted place at birth as something that's given to us. A form of meaning that doesn't require a resume, doesn't require anything. It's given to you. And we've eroded the value of that. You know, we can argue about if that's the right thing to do over time. But what it certainly does by eroding the value, removing the value place, is extraordinarily elitist. I will say that. It takes away from people something that's gifted to them. That doesn't require building a resume. It doesn't require going to school to get it. It doesn't require jumping through all these credentialed hoops. It's something that means a lot. It's free. How we as a society over the last 40, 50 years, when we think about policy, we rarely think about what it means to erode a neighborhood, what it means to erode a sense of place, what it means to require in the sense of asking people if you want to be successful, if you want to have a, quote, good life, you have to be willing to move all the time. It's taking away a lot from people. And I think we haven't recognized, the elites haven't recognized how painful that is. In many cases, it's everything someone has. It's all they have is their place, is their
0: heritage, is their family or their faith. So one of the things that you develop in the course of your work that really expresses the kind of divide that you're talking about when you talk about people who get the importance of place and who don't is the idea of the front row versus the back row. And you've talked about this a lot, but I feel like there tends to be a lot of misunderstanding around what you mean when you say that, because it doesn't map well, certainly in any linear sense, onto conservative versus progressive or onto Republican versus Democrat. But when you talk about the front row versus the back row, what do you mean by that?
1: Look, we have tons of divisions in this country. One of them is political. But I think what I found in my work was one of the largest divisions and what what I mean by largest, one of the deepest divisions, it divides us in terms of how we think about who we are as people, how we think about where our sense of meaning comes from is education and you know so that's why i use the schoolroom analogy of front row and back row and i don't mean that dismissively of of the back row i actually kind of to the degree i mean it dismissively it's more of the front which is i think that the analogy is better thought of in terms of the definition of the front which is easier to define it's people who've gone through a handful of colleges you generally have postgraduate degrees like myself i have a phd and, you know, you can think of the handful of schools of maybe 20 different colleges, you know, Princeton, Harvard, Cornell, a certain number of the, of the high end liberal arts colleges, Mount Holyoke, Vassar, you know, the very, very elite schools. And one of the things that's unique, you know, and generally there are a lot in academics, but there are also people in like bond traders who, too, you know, who have MBAs. I think that's easier to think about relative to everybody else, which, you know, I, I kind of overly simplify everybody else, but I, I focus on what I call the back row, which is people who generally don't go to college, if at all. If they go to college as community college for two years before dropping out, they might go to a trade school. I think another way to think about it is careerism. Do you define yourself as building together a career on LinkedIn? And are you climbing a career hierarchical ladder that requires building a resume? And it doesn't map onto politics, and that's what's kind of been always frustrating to me is i always say that to be somewhat provocative and i know it's almost a cartoonish statement but you know a bond trader who's a republican probably has more in common in my thought process to a professor of sociology at cornell or at harvard than they do to a kid flipping hamburgers in detroit or to a truck driver, despite the the kid can be a black kid and the truck driver can be a white kid. And to my internal frustration in many cases, the back row is divided politically and the front row is divided politically. But I really think when you look at how people, this is what I think is most important is how people view themselves in the world. How do they view their place and how do they find meaning? And in that sense, I think the education really is the cleanest division out there for how the people think about their place in the universe and how they think about their place in the world.
0: So, one of the things that's so interesting about your book is it kind of really puts a fine point on one of the contentious issues of the last presidential election and the Democratic primary, which is what is it that divides us? Is it race and identity or is it class? And in your book, you talk about questions of race and faith and questions of identity. But really, as you've described it now, your book is a book about class divisions. So why are Americans so focused on questions of, of race, identity, who we are, rather than questions of class, which is kind of how we are or how we live? I'm not sure
1: how to answer that. I think there's two versions of me, the cynical me, and I don't like to be this person because I don't like to be cynical. The cynical pessimistic me thinks it's is, is somewhat intentional, by the people in power to kind of divide the back. I saw this on wall street. There's a management technique of keeping your power by keeping everybody else confused. And chaos and going at each other's throats. So I think, you know, there's certainly a sense of that. I think that it's helpful for people in the front row who are very privileged to throw sand in the eyes of everybody else to try to like take away the focus on their privilege. And so I think that's the cynical version. You catch me on some days I feel that way and some days I don't. And the other is, you know, you know, I I don't want to over romanticize the back row. You know, I I make it very clear in my book that um, I don't really side with anybody. I think within the back row, there's divisions and and anger and racism that tears them apart as well without the help from the front. (laughs) And I think there's unnecessary antagonism in the back towards the front. I don't think the front row is it's all that bad. I happen to be a member of it. And I think a lot of people are, are wonderful people with great intentions. I think that the problem comes in that. The more and more i i I spend time reading and listening i just i get the impression that there's always someone getting advantage for divisions you know when there's a division always look for who's gaining from it and i think unfortunately we've created this environment where it's just like we're all scrambling for what should be plentiful resources and it's causing unnecessary divisions but you know to the degree i do place blame i do place it more at the front row's feet because we're the ones who make policy we're the ones in charge and as such We've asked to be responsible for the world. We've been given responsibility. And to the degree it's not working
0: out, it's our fault. So one of the things that I often encounter as somebody who, and I, I've said this on the podcast before and I tell it to people all the time in real life, I'm a religious fanatic, a very proud one. I'm a very religious person, come from a community that, you know, we think that God has a certain way that he wants us to tie our shoes and that, you know, certainly wants us to do everything else. So, one thing that I often encounter amongst people who I suppose you might characterize as being part of the front row, but I, I do think of them more as just like people with very loose attachments to things, I often kind of get questions along the lines of, why do you choose to keep kosher or why do you choose to keep the Sabbath? And they're not asking it antagonistically, they're asking it in a genuine way of like, what are you getting out of those decisions? Because they genuinely want to know. It might be something they want to try on for a while. And I always find it to be such strange and foreign framing of the question. Because I don't view those things as choices. Those are things that I'm absolutely obligated to do. And if I didn't do them, I would be like a traitor in a certain sense. Whether it's to my God or to my community and my parents or all of the above. And I often felt that same feeling as I was reading through your book and thinking about questions of place and faith and family where you know as you described earlier i suppose an economist might say well if things aren't working out in gary indiana which is one of the communities that you've spent a lot of time in you could move to a different community where the prospects are better and you could take advantage of a better job market and you could join a different church or you could join no church at all if that's sucking up your time and the response that I often kind of had in my own head, even before I would read the responses from the sort of people that you were talking to, was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, Gary and Dana is my home. I have obligations to this place that are unchosen obligations.
1: I mean, that's exactly right. And the thing is, is, um, you know, to get slightly more philosophical with a front row to the degree it has a dominant philosophy is, is positivism. is utilitarianism. So to be kind of geeky about it, they can't understand Non quantifiable forms of value. It's very much that conversation you had, which is I can understand the person asking you that because that used to be me. I mean, I was the scientific rationalist who was like, and I'm sure I do it in other contexts. You know, why are you keeping kosher? Like, uh, you know, right? That's silly. Like, what does that get you? Like, where's the upside? Right. I can see the downside, but where's the upside? And, like, <laughs> right. and what's the ROI on Leviticus 11? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's, it's exactly right. I mean, you know, and. That sort of world, that sort of cold secular rationalism, is the world I come from, and it's the biggest change of my life over the last fifteen years. Is that that arc of going, you know, if I were to write a kind of cartoonish version of my own arc, which which you know is it's it's not as not as cartoonish as that, is kind of going from the Richard Dawkins, well, actually, atheism is so clearly the choice to to the wait a second, you know, there's more here. Let's think a little bit more subtly about these things. I think a lot of the front row as it manifests these days is much more has a ruling almost egghead scientific background that always looks at everything and just simply says like you know that thing of like why don't you just move duh <laughs> you know right, like, right you know why don't you just give up your religion if it's not working i'm almost at a lack of words to say other than it's just soulless you know one of the things you should be as a if you're doing what i did which is going on as talking to people is at some point you just stop and listen you know you start getting these strange looks to your questions you have to ask yourself you know again Who's wrong? <laughs> it's a strange looks coming come because the question is silly. And I'm basically speaking in a different language. And, what you know, I think we in the front row tend to, you know, the front row of the policy class, what do you ever want to call them, tends to view everything in these very really cold, calculating Excel spreadsheet terms. Like, you know, I can almost see someone going, let's think about keeping kosher. Here's my spreadsheet of the pluses and minuses. And well, it's, it's overall and minus, so I'm going to stop it. You know,
0: no, that's not
1: how people right, work. Right, right.
0: <laughs> Hold on just one sec. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. So I think the core concept that maybe the policy class, you know, in America has a hard time grasping is the idea of unchosen obligations. Right. Obligations that predate any agency that you might have in your life.
1: Oh, definitely. That's that's a good way of phrasing it.
0: And so in the course of your book and your work, you've done some of the best work in documenting the varieties of unchosen obligations in the United States. And you've done it through myriad ways. You've spent times in McDonald's, in different communities, and you've listened to people. You know, I want to talk about drugs and drug use in a little bit, but one of the things that I I just found incredibly moving and something I identified with in your book was how you document the role of faith in God and religion in a lot of these kind of local communities. The reason I'm fascinated by that is first of all because this is good faith effort <laughs> but also because I do think that churches, maybe biblical religions particularly, but I think religions in general in America are one of the premier remaining places that believe in and preach unchosen obligations in everyday life. So, what were some really noteworthy to you experiences that you had just walking into, you know, a church in a small town, a kind of place that you never would have walked into otherwise?
1: Yeah, I mean, what amazed me, and you know, again, I went into this project 11 years ago, pretty committed, you know, I wasn't an arrogant atheist, I, I wasn't an obnoxious atheist, but I was, you know, if it if like, you know, around 2006, you'd asked me, I would have probably signed up as an agnostic. But it really was this slow process by which I started, you know, when I walked into Hunts Point, which is the neighborhood I first went to, which is in the Bronx, I really kind of expected naively to think that spending time with homeless addicts I, I would find atheists. I'd find agnostics. Right. Where's your
0: God now, type? Yeah,
1: exactly. You know. Right. And I found exactly the opposite. <laughs> I found some of the strongest believers and I saw why. And because there was just so much more there. There was so much more proximity to death. There was so much more proximity to firsthand experience with how cold the secular world was, how brutal it was, and how different the churches were that were in the neighborhood. Sometimes the only thing's there. So I started going to services and I made it a point to attend services you know, everywhere. I attended almost every faith. I, I went to mosques, temples, <laughs> primarily um, Pentecostal churches, because that's often was what, what neighborhoods I was in. But to me, what impressed me was the difference between how warm and how welcoming these places were, and, and immediately saw at a very aesthetic level what the value here was. You know, and so that first stage of my kind of becoming a non-Richard Dawkins type was. The classic first stage I think a lot of liberals or leftists take when they rediscover faith, which is very utilitarian, like, you know, oh, this has value, therefore let me think about it. But I'd like to think by the fifth or sixth year, I graduated beyond that. And that's almost a very offensive way of thinking about religion, you know. And I get when people get there, they don't realize they're being offensive. If you ask me in that level, I would have thought, you know, I wasn't being offensive. But it's a very condescending way to look at faith, which is, you know, I'm expanding my utilitarian worldview to accept that
0: maybe faith has a utilitarian
1: value that I hadn't seen before.
0: Right, that's sort of like the rise of like non-religious promotion of religion on the new right. There's like kind of a, a whole group of thinkers who are like this. It's sort of like religion has this positive social function.
1: Yes, exactly. So it's, it's very much an anthropologist going, oh, and that's not surprising given my father was effectively an anthropologist. So, you know, so I got there, but then I spent more and more time. I started thinking, hey, wait, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe this is true. To the degree that I'm allowed myself to think of it. Why have I come into this thinking utilitarian standpoint? I went from saying atheism is a luxury of the rich to thinking maybe actually atheism is a state in which the elites are clouding their vision to see what is
0: real by their privilege. That is so fascinating because okay, here's what just kind of clicked for me. And I, I'm just super excited because I'd never thought of this before. So like one of the things you kind of like read Richard Dawkins or, you know, you read a lot of those folks or watch videos. And I I used to be kind of like a connoisseur of those. One of the things that you find is that one of the most frequent arguments in favor of the new atheism after some like evolutionary biology is theodicy. There's a lot of suffering and it's hard to make sense of. So what you'll find amongst sort of a lot of very affluent kind of new atheists is, well, There's some horrific human suffering out there in the world and those things are incompatible with the good God and therefore the God that you're proposing doesn't exist. Then step two is somebody like you will spend a lot of time with the actual people who are experiencing that suffering, and you'll find that those people are extraordinarily religious and just deeply faithful, deeply committed. So then you have to go back to the new atheist and say, well, the people who are experiencing your argument for atheism are themselves very religious. The response at that point will have to be, well, it's because those people need religion in order to survive their suffering. So what, what you end up committing yourself to if you're sort of that affluent new atheist is that i am the only one who really understands suffering yep. and what it means and the people actually doing it don't understand so so what you're adding now is that in that respect that theodicy based theodicy meaning why do you know bad things happen to good people or vice versa that theodicy based suffering ends up becoming not a luxury but it's a way of soothing your conscience by saying, I know I don't understand suffering and I don't know what it means and therefore I'm missing out, you know, on some major part of what it means to be human. But really, I do understand. I even understand it better than the people experiencing it. That's classic front row thinking, which
1: is right. which is always assuming that someone who disagrees from you just isn't educated enough or just doesn't right. have, have the brain capacity to get there that you have. It's putting your utility function on other people as opposed to asking whether your utility function is wrong or maybe you're not seeing the whole picture. We're always on the front row, the ones who have the complete picture and we're always telling other people what that complete picture is. So the way I would think about it is in my mind, and look, I don't know much about theology and I'm making this stuff up as I go, but for me- We all are. <laughs> yeah, but for, for me, what I saw religion as is a recognition of human humility and a recognition of our limited capacity. Mm. And the front row, the, the educated Richard Dawkins types, thinks humans with enough time can have all the answers. That we can figure it out. That we can get the big bang. We can figure it out. Look, I know cosmology. I, I study the big bang. And you know, you get to a point where it, it's not much better than the Bible. <laughs> you know, I mean? it, it comes to the same end point, which is it's a little more fancy, but it comes to the same end point. Fewer well drawn characters. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so, but you feel like you know, with enough time, humans have big brains, and we can figure it out, and there's no need for anything else. Whereas I think people who are live live in suffering, who live through a brute, who who are much more aware that we don't have, the, we don't have it all. We, don't, we can't figure it out. They understand much better. They have more evidence, to put it in the scientific terms, they have more evidence for the failings of man and humility and the humbleness. And so they accept that there's something else that's larger. So when, when someone comes and says there is something bigger out there, there is something bigger than this humans, and that we're just, we're a minor player in this thing, that makes a lot more sense to them.
0: So one of the remarkable things that you do in your book and that you've done, you know, on social media and in public writing is document both the world or the worlds of drug use and a lot of the, the beauty and faith and family and and support that kind of exists within those spheres. So you'll have, you know, there's one group of characters that kind of emerges out of Dignity. And I mean characters because it's kind of like an archetype. But, you know, there are real people that you talk to in Dignity who you'll have one partner who's a heroin user. The other one is clean. And they both are giving something to each other. I think there's there's one couple that you document, one of whom is a user and sort of, you know, she has this kind of wild side to her that sustains her partner who's clean, but he needs kind of that thrill in his life and his thrill is being with this person. And on the other side, what keeps him clean is being there for her. And so they're both really getting something out of this. And out of it, they build, you know, a life that has real beauty and family and connection. And that kind of really spoke to me. And yet at the same time, one thing that I kind of used as a test as I was reading your book was I'm thinking about like my great grandparents, my great grandfather, who I was very fortunate to know when I was a kid, immigrant to the country. You know, he left Poland. The only thing that his parents gave him and they never saw him again. The only thing his parents gave him when they shipped him off to America was an orange and they saved for months and months and months to be able to afford it. So he came to the United States with an orange and he was never particularly successful Fortunately, his sons were wonderful and both became rabbis and faith leaders and kind of built a family from there. But I, I remember as I was reading through the book, thinking to myself, anytime I would see a prompt for rethinking emerge from your book, I would think to myself, OK, if I ran this by Zida Sam, right, my great grandfather, what would he say? And a lot of it really resonated. At least I felt in my imagination would resonate with him. The one thing where I had a harder time was with drug and alcohol use, where I felt like if I had said to him, like, listen, life is hard and people are just using and you have to understand that that's a part of this experience and the front row class created the conditions for this and then they wonder why it's there. And I kind of felt like that was the one thing I would have been embarrassed to even ask him about. Because he would have regarded drug and alcohol use as like, there's no excuse for that. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't want to
1: celebrate drug use. I mean, it, it's, it's abhorrent. I mean, it does immense damage. But to me, drug use is, is, again, the canary in the coal mine. It's it's kind of a, it's you know, it's symptomatic of a, of a deeper problem. And that's kind of what I was mm. trying to explore is what's the deeper problem. Right you know the dirty secret about drug use and that i think a lot of people don't understand is it's a community and this is why i said this many times i don't think i said it in the book but i don't know anybody in my work who got clean without faith who escaped the drug without faith and there's multiple reasons for that but one of the primary reasons is community i think the the big gap in our society the big hole the reason we have so much drug use. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to deny people's agency. Like people need to learn to have a little bit more self-control. I'm not going to you know, turn people into agency-free entities who are just buffeted by global forces. It helps to have strength and, and self-control. But the drug traps, you know, are community centers. They're, you know, there are places people go to feel welcomed. The take-home bumper sticker I try to get out of my book is everybody wants to feel a valued member of something larger than themselves. The drug trap, the crack house, actually makes people feel that way. It's not a good community. It's not a you know a community that we should want people to join, but it's a community. And I think we really need to recognize the communal aspect of drug use and, and how a lot of people who are drawn to drugs are drawn there almost because of loneliness. You know, If you give them a more
0: valid community, a community that's not as destructive, they would rather join that. So final question then would be, as we're trying to think about how to solve those underlying problems, I think we can identify a lot of the underlying issues, namely lack of ability to grasp the importance or the, even the existence of unchosen obligations, whether those unchosen obligations stem from place, from faith, from family. But if we're talking about what to do, so where do we go from here? If you're, if you're, It seems to me almost like a truism that the solution is going to have to come from the policy class, right? Because yeah, by definition, they're the ones making policy, unfortunately, but they're the ones making policy. So how do we move from here? And, and I'd, I'd even kind of extend the question by saying to the extent that the policy class, as you've laid out, you know, in your work and on this podcast, the one argument that the policy class understands is incentives and return. So if you're not going to be cynical, Chris, right, you're going to be positive, Chris, And you're going to be eschatological, looking forward to the messiah on good faith effort, Chris. So what's the optimistic case or or not optimistic, but the positive affirmative case for here's how we get the policy class to recognize what's going on and what the issue is and do something about it? I think, you know, Trump getting elected kicked a lot of things
1: into gear, both in good and bad ways. Hopefully it made the policy class aware that there's this anger, this frustration out there as well as the deaths of despair, you know, just the the suicide rates and the rates from overdoses. It's become such a big problem that I think, you know, again, the policy class are generally good people. I mean, you know, they want to do what's right. And they mean well. Yeah, I mean, they really do mean well, which sometimes, you know, people who mean well, who don't get it are more dangerous than people who don't mean well. But to me, it's going to take understanding that you just can't treat people like widgets who don't have souls, who don't need dignity, People can't be numbers in a spreadsheet to manipulate. They have to be your neighbor. They have to be people you know. You know, I'm really hoping that out of this last year and a half, COVID has made so clear how vital the parts of the community we don't look at, the places that provide us the food, the people who are working in the meatpacking plants, the essential workers are, and how we all are interconnected and need each other, and that you just can't let communities fall apart. It's almost like at some level, they, I can't hope this is intense empathy, but at least a selfishness comes and they recognize that their own safety you know, is dependent on a much more robust, healthy society than we have right now. I'm not sure I can get much more uncynical than that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty negative, unfortunately, you know, and I, I don't want to come off as a you know, Debbie Downer, but I really do worry, even though I come from the left in some ways, I'm very much a culturalist. I believe culture matters. It's, it's the water we swim in. And if the water we swim in is wrong, then eventually the fish are going to die. In some levels, of water needs to be changed. We need to reevaluate a culture and rethink about what we value and replace place and faith and family. All those things that make the policy class uncomfortable to hear about, we have to revalue those and put them front and center
0: and recognize that a lot of, most people do put them in front and center. Amen. Chris, thank you so much for coming on. And well, thank you for having me. Unchosen obligations. You've heard me talk about this idea before. It's at the core of what I'm trying to do with this podcast. Unchosen obligations aren't a luxury. They're not something you can have only if you have time or money or whatever. They're literally the basis for joy, for peace, for belonging. They're what binds us together and lifts up the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. And so if we want a better society in the months, years, and generations to come, then let's focus on bringing this idea, these unchosen obligations, back to the front and center of American life. All right, that's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. faith effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam, and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com.
1: The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.